Mark Cuban's not in a cage. Most people, and when I say most, I'm talking like a very high percentage, are locked in cages. You want to know why they're mad? They're furious because they, they're tired of being locked in the cage. And what it feels like to be in the cage is this. I work my ass off all day long. When I come home, I can't spend any of my money because if I do, I won't be able to afford my electric bill at the end of the month. I watch all these other people on TV and they're out there buying Louis Vuitton bags and doing all this stuff and I can't do any of it. And next month, I'm going to be able to do less than what I'm doing right now. And it feels like the harder I work, the less I make. That's living in the cage. And that's most people. That's why Bitcoiners are taking it so seriously. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. Thanks for joining us here again on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. Today, we are honored to be joined by Preston Pish. We're just going to put this out there for anyone that's been listening to us for any amount of time. You know that we refer to Preston as our great white buffalo. Preston is a tour de force in the Bitcoin space. He started as a value investor in the style of Warren Buffett. Having listened to him for years, his pivot from analyzing stocks for value to Bitcoin has been instrumental to our journey into understanding Bitcoin ourselves. Key to this understanding is to realize that without sound money, value investing itself has made orders of magnitude harder. The money is the underlying structure of markets. When it is compromised, the entire market stack is nonsensical. This explains why we see PE ratios in the market at all-time highs, people using S&P 500, real estate, and just about anything to store value. Preston has a gift for explaining these ideas to the traditional value investing community. This also explains how someone like Preston would view Bitcoin as a conservative investment. Preston currently hosts the Bitcoin Fundamentals podcast. We highly recommend you listen to this each week. If you have even a passing interest in this space, Preston's work is pure signal in a world of noise. You can follow Preston on Twitter at Preston Pish. That's P-R-E-S-T-O-N. P-Y-S-H. And as always, you can follow us at blue underscore collar BTC or send us an email at blue collar Bitcoin podcast at Gmail. If you enjoyed the show and you want to support us, check out the show notes. We have a couple of different ways you can send us sats. Enjoy. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Mr. Preston Pish, welcome to the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast. I've been uh, I've been waiting for you guys to invite me on the show. It's been like thirty episodes. I've been sitting yeah. here waiting for the invite, and you guys have just this is your big break, man. <laughs> you know, we ask a lot of girls, and you know, we finally got to the good-looking one, and she said yes. <laughs> Preston, we're gonna we're gonna do our best here off the top not to butter your muffin too thoroughly, <laughs> um, but I, it would be you have had a gargantuan impact on the two of us. And 
we, we certainly align with a lot of your ideas, opinions, and, and worldview, but I think what's had the biggest impact on us is just through the years, the way that you think and the intellectual integrity with you, which you develop ideas. So needless to say, we're, we're super pumped to get into it tonight. And we're, we're grateful for you uh, giving us an hour here. No, it's my pleasure. And thank you guys for your service. Likewise, right back at you. Yeah. Yeah. So Preston, through the years, we've been listening to you hundreds of hours. And one of the things that stands out to me, um, just thinking about some of the people that I listen to that have some of the most concise thoughts and and some of the most just most distilled ways to break things down. And, and it happens that you're an engineer um, by trade. Michael Saylor is an engineer by trade. What do you think it is about that kind of expertise that allows you to boil these and distill everything down into those constituent parts that allow you to break it down and really package it up for everybody and send it out in a way we can all understand so efficiently? How 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 do you think that is? So as an engineer, I like this question. So as an engineer, this is the thing I've learned. Most people are problem identifiers and not problem solvers, mm-hmm. right? And as an engineer, you have to solve the problem. Like you can't just say, hey, there's something wrong over there and then just complain about it and offer no solution because in engineering, you have to solve the problem. You have to put something in place. You have to build the building 30 stories high because that's what the requirement calls for. And so I think, uh, you know, an engineer is, is approaching it from that framework. And the other key part of being an engineer is in order to solve the problem, you have to know all the inputs. You have mm. to know all the variables. You have to understand the environment in which the thing that you're constructing is going to sit. So you have like all these design specs and you're accounting for all those different design specs in order to construct a solution to the right. problem. And I guess that's, that's just how we kind of approach Lynn Alden's also an engineer, right? So like, that's how she thinks through, that's how her, her mind kind of operates. And so where we're a little bit different, especially in the finance realm is you get a lot of people from wall street, you get a lot of economists and they don't have to be right. I mean, you can, you can put on a position in finance and in investing and be dead wrong as far as like the long-term viability of a company, you know, adding productive value to society. And just because you're in some type of market cycle, you might be right for the holding period and then sell it. And the whole time you were just dead wrong right. about the, about the long-term prospect of yeah. the business. So I think we're looking at it and, you know, I'm not trying to say this from like an egotistical, we're just kind of looking at it from a different lens and we're looking at it from this lens of of looking at it from like a math problem and, and offering what is the, what is the solution to the yeah. problem? It seems to me like it's one of those hard science versus soft science type things. Like economists are generally a very soft science. There's, there's sure there's data. What it brings to mind for me is reading some Richard Feynman books I've read through the years. Mm-hmm. And he talks about, I think it was maybe when he investigated the, the shuttle uh, Challenger accident or something, but there yeah. was somebody, there were some other people on the board that were investigating it that weren't engineers by trade or they weren't scientists. They were, had a soft science background and he was just completely rigid about the science about how to investigate mm-hmm. this thing and they you know were interested in everything but that and it was extremely frustrating for him and i, I just kind of see it myself from where i'm sitting that this is just a hard science allows you to really put the numbers in and get the outputs if you had the right variables everything set up correctly and the soft sciences are basically just guessing 
It's funny you mentioned the Challenger incident because when I went through business school uh, for my master's, they did this scenario where they had everybody you know, in the class, uh, they gave them this scenario with like a race car and they, they tried to recreate the Challenger decision points, but they did it from like a racetrack scenario. Mm. And at the end of the scenario, I was like, yeah, absolutely. You should race. You should go. And then the teacher, you know, in most of the class was, was saying that they shouldn't or whatever. And at the end, the teacher was like, all right, well, you just blew up the challenger. (laughs) Right. And I was like, you know, uh, if we're talking about risk, if a race car's engine stops, right, you still are going around the track and it's not like it's exploding, um, which is a very different scenario than the challenger. But here we are, you know, talking about correlations. And so even at like, you know, an academia, you know, business school kind of level, I'm thinking to myself, like the critical thinking of like solving a a real problem and then trying to make, make them seem like they're at parity is just straight laughable. And I just couldn't believe that they were even trying to do the leap uh, to demonstrate a point that was just totally missed. And it goes back to like, what is the actual risk that's being assumed for the problem that's being solved for? And it goes to everything you guys are, are talking about. It's just it's kind of crazy. Yeah, it is. It, you know, back to sort of what you were saying a second ago, Josh, we've had Foss on twice and, you know, he goes on and I know you've talked to him a lot and, and him just saying the trajectory of fiat currencies, like the trajectory of this massive preposterous credit bubble that the world is in, it only goes one direction. And I think the longer we're in this space, the longer we read, the longer we research and think and digest this, there's a humility that comes with that. Like Josh and I are constantly admitting there are many unknowns. There's a lot of gray in terms of the future and the implications of this and exactly how it's going to play out and what it's going to look like decades from now. What's not all that gray, what's not all that nebulous is the fact that the current trajectory of the global economy seems to be headed in one definitive direction. And I think mm-hmm. that's an important way to think some of these things through. What are the the one, two, three, what are the few things that you can really hang your hat on based on your own research and your own intuition. And I think that's what really, at least for me, and I know Josh to a large extent, launched us down the rabbit hole that allowed us to see what's going on behind the curtain with Bitcoin. What do you know for sure? Like when you're starting off with defining your environment for, for solving a problem, it's okay, well, gravity is real. I know that I'm going to, I'm going to use that as a foundation for how much I need to, to, uh, construct this beam and how much it needs to be able to to carry a load uh, based on this thing that I feel like I know for sure. And so when you're when you're constructing a portfolio today, what is it that you know for sure? And what you just said, Dan, is is a, exactly the point. Is I feel like I and I might be wrong, but what I feel like I know for sure is that they're going to debase. They're going to continue to to base even worse than what they have in the past 10, 20 years. And a lot of that is all around the the fixed income market and how it's falling apart and the cost of capital is being destroyed. You have fiscal habits that are really at the heart of that are driving all of that. No response, no fiscal responsibility anywhere in the world because there's no peg. You have a competitive uh, situation between nation states that they're trying to out debase each other. Um, these are the things that I feel like I know for sure. So if that's the environment now, 
how do you put on a position that can outperform your standard indexes like your S&P 500 or your NASDAQ? What, how can I actually outpace that? And I don't think there's too many things that can actually outpace those things. There's yeah. not. No, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. I, I think the other, one of the keys is, and you and you and Breedlove really get into this. You got into this in the What is Money series you did. And I, and I really appreciated the sort of the gracious spirit you guys came at thinking through the, the people that are pulling the levers in power today. And it's, they're a product of their environment. If, yes. if any one of the three of us were Jerome Powell, right? Mm-hmm. W- what choice do we have, right? And this is, you know, it's easy for us to, to, to sling tomatoes at the stage on Twitter. But at the end of the day, this thing is just a giant clusterfuck that doesn't have a lot of options for a solution. And these people are enacting the solution that they think produces the least amount of pain. Yeah. And um, I, so I think there was, there was sort of a grace that you came at with that I appreciated in that conversation with Bree Love. And that's part of just the inevitability here is virtually anyone in that position would be doing what they're doing. They have to print. Well, and clear down to the uh, elected officials. So if there's a pot of, of money and you're not trying to claw that into your local district that you represent, somebody else is going to do it. It's it's the tragedy of the commons to the nth degree. And in most countries around the world are structured in a very similar way where, I mean, you just look at the government spending. It's very obvious where that's all going and what industries it's going to. And when you look at how incentivized the elected officials are to keep those dollars flowing into their district, you can see why there's no incentive to be fiscally responsible because that's how the tragedy of the commons works. Yeah. yeah I'm just imagining the Congress floor and somebody dumped a whole bunch of white balls and these hungry, hungry hippos are just gobbling these balls up. And if you don't get them, the other guy's getting them. And it's... I mean, that's a really rudimentary way to, to kind of broil this down for people to think about, but that is exactly what's going on. If you, if you don't get your share, the other sloppy hogs next to you and next to them are going to get it from you. Yes. I mean, Preston, it's, picture running for office, like picture the ticket, you know, Preston Pish for whatever seat, right? And saying, <laughs> all right, here's the deal, folks. We are, uh, we're at the end of a hundred year debt cycle. We're way over leveraged. We're going to need to curtail spending significantly, lock it down. There's going to be a, an enormous amount of pain here for the next three to 15 years. Hang tight with me, Preston 2026. I mean, who, who in their right, it's just, Nobody. You, you realize the impossibility <laughs> of this incentive structure working to reform the current situation. And as you take the fractal out of that, when you come out and zoom out even more, and exactly what you just said, like that dog will never hunt. So now let's zoom out to a fractal even larger than that. And you have the same thing happening between nation states as far as that debasement goes. Because if the US, it, let's, just, let's just say you got all the countries in the world and they're being responsible and the US is printing like crazy. And then coming over to these other foreign countries and buying up all their assets and all their equity with the freshly printed money, like that's not a fair game. So you got to fight back. Well, how do you fight back? Well, you debase your currency and you go over there and start buying their assets. Yeah, That's what's happening on a global collective level is another tragedy of the commons because nothing is pegged. In the, in the scenario we're watching play out, it's, it's kind of logical. And I think Floss has kind of reinforced this in my mind that the dollar is probably going to be the last fiat standing. So all of these other countries that are watching the debasement and having to jump in to do it themselves are risking, it seems even more because if their currency, their local currency collapses, people fall into 
the dollar likely before Bitcoin, if that happens and when that happens, the the U.S. is going to own everything at that point or the, the competition between the Chinese and the U.S. and China doing their belt and road uh, maneuvering to basically own Africa and as many of the Middle Eastern countries as they can. How do you see that geopolitical movement playing I don't, out? I don't see it as the U.S. owning everything. What I see it as is um, for every dollar that the U.S. debases, you're going to see Euro uh, match it in kind. You're going to see China match it in kind. You're going to see all the major currencies, the, the yuan, the, the yen, all of them are going to match it in kind. Because if they don't, what happens is, is the, their currency gets too strong. And so they're having, because the do, while the dollar is getting stronger, everything else is weakening. And when the dollar is weakening, everything else is getting stronger. And what it does is it causes the cost of goods and, and labor inside those, those uh, geographic locations to get more expensive and they're seeing a contraction in their economy. So they're going to naturally race each other in this debasement game. It's going to just naturally happen because of the implications of the debt markets getting too uh, too tight, and commerce and the GDP dropping because you don't have foreign uh, currency flowing into the country when it when the, when the local currency gets too expensive relative to the others, and it's just this big giant homeostasis situation of every country debasing and racing each other, whether what they real whether they realize it for that or not. Can we? Um, I'd like to game the other side of this just just as a I know I yeah. doubt. Highly doubt this is going to happen, but Jerome Powell just came out and said they're going to they're going to ease off of the quantitative easing and they're going to potentially raise interest rates if they actually meaningfully, yeah, in air quotes, if they meaningfully took the Volcker exit shoot and they decided we're going to have to raise rates and do this for real and we're going to try to solve this problem. How do you how would you see that playing out if that were if, to happen? If they raise rates, you immediately can't do you can't afford the interest payments from a sovereign level right we're not even talking from a corporate or individual level like the impact i'm just saying from a sovereign level they can't afford that so yeah, they and, this, have and the sensitivity is insane i mean we're talking oh, about tenths of a percent move like as we look at, at at the decisions they've made the last 5 years or 2018 or whatever i mean the the sensitivity i forget who i i heard say this but it's like there's this tower of blocks in your living room and Maybe it was you. I don't know. But there's like once you're a couple blocks high, you can stomp on the floor and the things holds together. But once you're 16 layers up, the smallest stomp causes the whole thing to crumble. And that's, that's right. I mean, tenths of you know basis points are moving markets, right? Whereas you go back to the days of Volcker or whatever. I mean, the, the the amount of latitude that there was in that day and age is just it's just totally dissimilar to where we are today because Completely. of the backdrop. And the other thing that you had back then was you didn't have companies and individuals that were incentivized to be as levered up to their eyeballs as possible because interest rates were very high. So you just you didn't have the balance sheet, the personal balance sheet and the corporate balance sheet and the sovereign balance sheet like you have today. Yeah. Obviously, you know, you project that there's going to be a significant, I think in all caps, reset here uh, with mm -hmm. the introduction of this this beast. How do you see that? I, I, I love, I would like to tee this up for you. How do you see that playing out? Like, do you think it's going to be um, with a bang, with a whimper? Um, do you think these systems can work in parallel for a period of time to kind of allow people to transition? I know that's sort of a, a Jeff Booth idea, and I think it's glass half full. Like, game out for us 
in your lifetime, how you see this beginning to play out moving forward? So, A, I don't know. I'm just going to start off with that. But like, if I was going to just kind of describe a couple different arrays of future outcomes, this is how I would describe them. So on a fast timeline, I think you're five years out from this thing, like really kind of taking over. I think on a longer time frame, I'd say 10 years. Some people, I know a lot of people like to sh- throw around like 20, 30 years. I think that that's just asinine. Why is that, if you don't mind? Yeah. Why, no, why do I you th- think, why do you have that five to 10 year timeline? Because of how broke the fixed income space is. That's why. Yeah. Um, so like people were looking at Bitcoin and saying, oh, well, the stock to flow says we're going to be at this level and we we're on the trajectory for. Uh, another million users inside of Bitcoin within the next four years. And they're throwing around like these numbers, right? And, or I'm sorry, not another million, another, it would be a billion users within the next four years. And what I'm, I'm saying, okay, that's interesting. And yes, those are the rates and that is the pace of Bitcoin. But what I think they're failing to account for is the, the backdrop of fixed income and how insanely, incredibly broke it is. And so when, when I think about what the speed of five to 10 years, what I'm really getting at is I think there's going to be so much trust lost in the existing system within that time frame that all roads are going to lead towards Bitcoin adoption kind of really taking off. So, I mean, you're already seeing the trust eroding right now. Like, I mean, just look at like the ECB yeah. or the Fed's Twitter page right? Or, or their posts in just go in the comments. It's, it's ungodly. Like yeah. I can't believe they still allow comments to be up. <laughs> right. They're yeah, getting right? Turn, ratio. turn them off, folks. Turn them off. Yeah, I love reading crazy. them. I want them to stay on. I want them to stay on too. But like at the same time, I'm like, who is the idiot that's allowing these comments to still be on? Because I mean, <laughs> like they're trying to sow the seeds of stability and trust. And like, I mean, there isn't a single comment on anything they post that doesn't lead to Bitcoin kind of being in the comment. Yeah. So, so if we're there right now, can you imagine where we're going to be in five years from now with more of this these actions? Because it's just recently, I would say since COVID, it's become very evident that they they're losing control. Right. It's becoming very evident. Yeah. And 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 here here's one thing that I find interesting. So. From my vantage point, it seems to me, so you have what happened in 2008, right? They spin out $800 billion. They buy all these mortgage-backed securities. People are like, okay, that, that's, that's kind of weird. Um, all right, then we go, right? QE continues on. Now you have sort of the COVID excuse. Like, okay, this, this $4 trillion they just spit out, like that's because of this global pandemic. But anybody that can do some napkin math understands that the next time we have an insane trough in the stock market and the S&P does a, a nosedive like we've almost never seen before, that printer is going to continue to run hot and hot. it's going to, as you have said before, it's QE infinity. So I think the next time it happens, COVID's over, we're back to quote unquote normal and the printer runs hotter than it ever has before. That's when the charade is really going to be called. And I feel the light bulb's going to go off for a lot of people who haven't made this realization yet. Would people fail to realize is this is not a linear equation. This is an exponential equation, and here's why. So when you add monetary baseline units to the system, fiat units to the system, the credit that's constructed on top of that is not a one-to-one. 
right? Yeah. So, and like not even close to being a one-to-one. It's like not one even to, close. It's like one to ten. So as all as the last round with that has all this credit constructed on the new monetary baseline, which was expanded. You're you're building all this credit on top of it that's then going into equity premiums and everything else. As that starts to contract and blow up, they have to replace that giant amount of credit with monetary baseline to reflate everything. But the problem is, is that that fractional reserve ratio is going to construct more credit on top of the new monetary baseline, which isn't twice the size, it's four times the size. And then the credit on top of that is 10x whatever that is. And so you're dealing with, think of it like energy in a fire. In the in the fire ring is getting bigger. Okay. As it gets bigger, I don't throw two logs on there. I might have to throw 10 logs on there. And then when you get something like the size of the the bonfire, like Texas AM, I think that's the one that does the like now you're having to like put like entire, you know, buildings on this fire ring just to keep the thing going. Right. And how much faster does that burn out, even though you just put in a hundred X what you did the last time? Right. The fire has to keep growing. When, I, when I'm thinking about the time frame, the thing that, that I just can't wrap my head around is how quickly the trust in the old system is eroding. That's mm. the thing I'm seeing. And um, people are going to be desperately looking for the escape hatch. I think they're finally starting to see it. I mean, the fact that Michael Saylor is going on mainstream shows and having hour-long conversations about Bitcoin yes. um, should tell you everything and, and that there's a massive audience salivating for listening to this tells you where we're at and tells you that trust is eroding. The fact that you got Tom Brady out there throwing Bitcoins into the moon <laughs> on Twitter, I think it, it's, it's, a little, it's a little lost on us. Yeah. It's a little law. Lo- it's become a little normalized. And there's nothing normal about this. We are going through a hyperinflation event. People don't want to hear it. You got Jack Dorsey. Just think about this. This dude is watching nearly every single transaction on the planet as the CEO of Square (laughs) making a post and saying, we're going to go through hyperinflation. And people are saying, oh, what the hell does that guy know? Yeah. Yeah. He's just, yeah. The, the, He's the, the, literally what, peering into every single con- transaction on the planet. Going, what just yeah. what he crazy. just did when he left Twitter, and I'm sure you saw the new. You know, they just changed the name of Square to Block. I mean, <laughs> they changed the the Bitcoin related part of the company to Spiral, which is very similar. I know you've put this chart up on uh, the Spiral chart, showing it reaching the next 10x band, and on and on it goes till it reaches, you know, infinity. It's it's crazy. And I, I crazy. mean, Jack Dorsey is an absolute gem and we have to treasure him because that guy, I mean, I'm going to miss him on Twitter because I, I hope it doesn't go to shit after he leaves. But yeah, when you hear what he's been saying, though, there's no surprise that he's making this move. Um, he's, he's looking at the critical variable as an engineer. He's looking at the critical variable, right? He's yeah. saying, if I fix the money, all this other stuff that's causing me to go sit on the hill and testify just solves itself. Just disappears. Yeah. It disappears. So he's like, it's noise. I need to focus on the critical variable as the engineer in the room and solve the problem. The problem's yeah. the money. Preston, I'm yeah. sure, I'm sure you the circles you run in, you're gonna resonate with what I'm about to say. So uh, I have a uh, a number of buddies that I went to college with that work in finance. 
And what's been fascinating for me, even just in the four and a half years I've been involved, is how much the narrative and the tone is changing. So I've said this on the show before, but I kind of have like these three eyes. Like back in 2017-ish, and I was I was on my high horse and just labeled as idiotic. Like the word idiotic was, there's no way this is going to work. This is completely asinine. It's total buffoonery, right? Now I feel like in this cycle, we're transitioning into the the narrative is now like, this is interesting. Like this is something that I'm now paying some attention to. I find it interesting. You're starting to hear things like small hedge. These are words coming out now. Where this snowball really starts rolling down a steep hill is when that moves into the imperative stage and people start to understand this is not a joke. This is an absolute must that this be part of your portfolio. And I'm talking about that from a professional finance lens, but that's sort of to parlay that into the demographic we're speaking to. I think we've kind of gone, I've gone through the same progression personally, like thought this was crazy at first, then latched onto it in small amounts. And now at this date and time, I'm saying owning some of this is an absolute must in any and every portfolio out there. I, th- I think we're reaching that level. And I, I sense that Absolutely. institutional money and professional finance is one step behind. Absolutely. Because going back to what I was saying earlier is it's not necessarily Bitcoin that I'm looking at. It's the health and the total erosion of trust in the fixed income space. What comes next? Because what comes next is yield curve control. Mm. And people might hear that and they say, okay, well, what the hell is yield curve control? Well, this is what it is. You've got QE where they where they print a bunch of money. They step into this quote unquote free and open market, which is totally not a free and open Laughable. market. They buy the bonds, they stuff the cash into the system, and they claw those securities, quote unquote, out of the market. Well, what yield curve control is, and and in the meantime, the 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 yields are kind of floating around. They're letting them come up. If they get too out of control, things start breaking. Well, then they step in and they do QE again, which is what I just described. Yield curve control, which is where they're going next, is all right. We can't afford for the market to even be remotely free and open, right? Yeah. And we it, we are going to tell you that if the ten year Treasury goes over fifty basis points. No matter what, we will step in and buy it because as the yields are going higher, people are selling. So if the yields go to 51 basis points on the 10-year treasury, the treasury is stepping in and they're buying the hell out of it until that yield. And if more sellers keep showing up in droves, we're going to keep buying it no matter what until that yield gets pegged at at least no greater than 50 basis points. Okay. That's where they're going next. And they're going to go there across every bond on the curve, on the duration. So the 30-year, the 10-year, the five-year, every single one of them is going to be pegged at a yield. And what that means is they will step in and buy anything that sells off higher than that yield. Okay. So then the next question becomes, well, that sounds like unlimited money. That sounds like unlimited coordination between the central bank and the treasury. And guess what? It is. <laughs> uh, and so um, so then it, then it becomes this. Okay, so if you're pegging it at 50 basis points and things are starting to sputter around and not looking, like right now, the, the market's sputtering around. People are wigging out. They're like, hey, we're at like a negative 400 basis point spread between CPI and the 10-year treasury. Like that's normal, right? 
So they're looking at this and they're saying, or the next question that, that you have to ask yourself is, well, it's 50 basis points, yield curve control from this duration to this duration, things start sputtering around. What's going to stop them from making it negative 25 basis point yield curve control? And what type of energy, and I like to use the word energy, just like Michael Saylor uses it. What type of energy debasement is required to keep it there? Because you could have $10 billion step into the market as a sell order, and they've got to match it in order to keep that peg and that yield pegged at that percent. So that's where we're going next, right? And I think we're going there way sooner than people realize. And when I'm thinking about how this thing really starts to unravel itself, it's it's there. Like that's that's what's going to do it. It's not going to be like, oh, well, the Bitcoin stock to flow says we should only be at a million per coin. <laughs> well, I'm sorry, that doesn't matter when trust is literally melting down in front of your eyes. It just doesn't yeah. matter. And it, and it, and here's another thing: it doesn't help that you have sovereign entities. Think about this: sovereign debt being issued today, backed by Bitcoin. Backed by a hash rate. You have Goldman Sachs coming out and saying, and I'm like literally pounding on my table right now. (laughs) This is on our list for you today. (laughs) Yeah, you're jumping the gun on us, but go, go. But yeah, so Goldman Sachs. Oh, we find this pretty interesting. These Bitcoin, of course you do. It's pristine collateral. Because you, sir, are the patsy at the table issuing debt for other people to buy homes at nothing percent and pay you back over 30 years. You, sir, are the patsy at the table. Yeah, right? the, the bag yeah. holder is starting to see what's in his hands. Absolutely, they are. And and boy, oh boy, if they're not sharding themselves <laughs> a little bit right now, like, I'm sorry, uh, I don't know what to tell you, but you but you're totally lost. I'm fascinated by what's going on in these boardrooms because I think we're at the point where enough people get this that there has to be at least occasional conversations going on where someone's speaking sense into the room and there's just utter and sheer silence around the room trying to think of how and why that doesn't make sense. Maybe they're teeing off on hole 13. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Maybe they didn't show up for their four board meetings to collect their 250K for the year. And they're just, you know, voting by proxy. I don't know. But here's the thing, dude. We're written as, as not just a nation state, but the global world collectively, right? Spoiled rich kids collectively. Mm-hmm. Okay. And if, you, if you're the fourth generation of just being wealth handed down to you, which is how I see the world collectively of these, like really these global powers, the year, people that are in Europe, people in the United States, these, these big powerhouse fiat currency uh, locations, they're spoiled rich kids, right? They don't have to do critical thinking. They've just really kind of been afforded some amazing yeah. uh, lifestyle, right? Like you got water, you got running water. People were complaining because maybe their phone's not downloading stuff fast enough. Like that's their, those are real world problems for people right now. Critical thinking is so lost in the world right now that when you say, you know, I wonder what's happening in these boardrooms. Like what I'm thinking is most people there are living in the damn lap of luxury and they're, they just don't think it can happen here. Right. And boy, are they about to have their bell rung. Yeah. That. That strikes me when you say that this is the fourth generation of wealthy people. And 
the reason I it resonates is because uh, having read the fourth turning, I don't know if that's something that you've read, but mm-hmm. it is so it's so relevant to what's going on in the world. And these 80 year, 80 to 100 year cycles that we see, it tends to be and looks like through the lens of history that it really is people getting spoiled and forgetting about the hard times. And that kind of reanimates the hard times all over again. I want to switch gears here just a little bit and uh, pry a little bit into your personal life, because I think one of the one of the interesting things for us to consider is just what you've gone through kind of the last five years as we've been listening to you and sort of watching your progression into Bitcoin. And I know you have a tremendous amount of support from the Bitcoin community and, you know, you've been blessed with a lot of people that really resonate with, with what you're doing. But I'm sure there's there's a stigma that's been around this, and I'm sure you've had a lot of kickback on moving from a value investing forward podcast to a Bitcoin specific podcast. Like this whole move you've made both within your personal portfolio and in your career trajectory towards this asset. What has that been like personally for you, and and what's some of what what is some of what you've gone through? as you've made that that move into greater conviction in this asset. I was very fortunate with my timing of when I really started to beat the drum. And that was by design. So, you know, I started talking when, when we started getting close to the having event, I would say 3 months before the having event is whenever I was like, all right, I'm putting a significant portion of my personal net worth in this. I feel like this is the time to start talking about it because I really think this thing's going to try to make a, a run at a hundred thousand in the coming two years. And so I started talking about it when I really started beating the drum price was very volatile. It really wasn't moving, but then within I'd say three to six months, it really started taking off and there's nothing that will shut people up faster than just being <laughs> not, not being right, but being super right about a specific call especially if that's all you're talking about, because there's just no debating it, right? And, and trust me, early on, those first couple months, people were like, you've lost your mind. Yeah. Did you get, I mean, <laughs> where did that, like, did you have close friends and confidants saying that? Was that mostly coming from Twitter? Like, where did nah. the where did the kickback come from? Mostly Twitter from people I don't yeah. know. Yeah. I used to get such a kick out of your mastermind sessions where you and Stig, and I, I just can't remember the other gentlemen that were with you, but you would all pick an asset or an equity and you pick Bitcoin like two or three sessions in a row. And, and that's why I don't them. do the mass. That's why I don't do the mastermind. <laughs> well, I yeah. haven't, I know. And it, it wasn't, it wasn't because, uh, anything other than I told Stig after I did that a couple times in a row, I was like, honestly, dude, I, I can't even recommend anything else other than Bitcoin right now. So it's pointless for me to be on the mastermind discussion. And he's like, yeah. And he agreed with me. And it wasn't, be, it, it was just, if this is all I'm going to talk about and this is all I'm going to recommend, well, what's the point of me being on there and, and saying, oh yeah, I think that uh, that equity will do well when my real opinion is that that equity is going to underperform Bitcoin by 80%, right? I'm not adding value to the audience that's wanting to hear an equity conversation at that yeah. point. Yeah. And they clearly knew what my opinion was, which is buy Bitcoin. <laughs> this may be a quick, easy, she trusts me answer. We got this interesting question on Twitter from James Ripian. I think it's how it's pronounced. He said, 
How did he convince his wife to go all in Bitcoin, assuming it was a family <laughs> finance discussion, which this is like as funny as this is, this is a real thing for people because for both Josh and I, like our conviction has escalated. And like in my personal family situation, like my wife does trust me. Uh, we each have our own spots and and finance and our money is kind of in my court, but I'm still running it by her. And there's been this progressive like, I think we need more. Uh, oh, shit. I think we need more. Um, honey, mm -hmm. I think we need more. I, as Josh can attest, I'm unbelievably risk averse. And this really countervails a lot. That's of why you previous exactly, exactly. That's exactly <laughs> why I'm in it. But but that it's shocking yep. for people initially because I've I've sort of been just your. As Josh and I have talked about this through the years, I've said from square one. If everyone asks me, don't own any fixed income. I've been saying that for years. No fixed income. But I've kind of been your boglehead. Like his little book of common sense investing was it really impacted me. I'm like, you know what? Free up your cash flow. Stay out of abhorrent amounts of debt buy equity uh, over 30 years, you'll be okay. Well, that conviction has changed and my portfolio has changed with it, but I've kind of had to bring my my wife along with it. I'm sure you've had to do the same thing with whatever strategies you had before. How is that gone in, in your household? I'm going to... I'm going to make a prediction here really quick. I've watched, Dan's, <laughs> I've watched Dan's trajectory here for the last few years. And my bold prediction for the next two to three years is that he will be 100% invested in Bitcoin in two, two to three years. That's my, my base case. <laughs> we'll save that. That's something Josh and I get into nonstop. <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going to bore the audience with my explanation, but what has this experience been like for you and your family, Preston in the Pish household? So my wife is, she just trusts me, Yeah. right? It's not her domain. She really is insanely bored by any type of finance conversation. Same. Insanely bored. Likewise. And, and to be honest with you, I actually like not having to ever even really talk about any of this. I don't talk about any of this stuff with my wife at all. Um, she knows obviously that I'm, that I'm heavily involved in Bitcoin and all this kind of stuff, but for the most part, she just doesn't care. Yeah. <laughs> so, That's, yeah. and she, and she trusts me. And, uh, I think, you know, she can, she can see the, the bank account. So like, uh, she's, I've never given her a reason to not trust me. And, uh, she just kind of looks at my decisions and says, all right, well, he obviously knows what he's doing based on what I'm seeing. So, uh, I'm just gonna not say anything. So it, it's, you know, some relationships, there's couples that like, it's my money, it's that person's money. And, you know, it's kind of a battle because they both have different maybe opinions on what they should be buying and what my relationship with my wife is nothing like that. Yeah. So, and you know, about your comment on the hundred percent in, you got to look at like your business too. So like, of course, when I'm looking at how I'm investing retained earnings, uh, yeah, it's, it's going into Bitcoin. But that doesn't mean that that's like my only asset. I have other, hell, this this recording that we're doing right now is an asset. It's a digital asset that's going to run into perpetuity if you decide to run advertising on right. it or whatever. Like, that's an asset. You can't, well, I mean, I guess you could sell it and then convert that into Bitcoin, but then you're not going to have any free cash flows, right? So <laughs> sell the rights. You, we're going to sell the rights to blue collar Bitcoin for, for sats right now. Right. <laughs> But my point, my point of saying that is I look at it like uh, how much people ask me all the time, how much of your net worth is in, but well, I don't know how to capitalize like what my assets would be capitalized mm. in a private market to even begin to answer that question. So I don't know, but I do, 
I do know what I do with my retained earnings and I invest them in Bitcoin right now is the easiest <laughs> way I can answer that. Yeah. Love it. I want to change gears here for a second and talk about Ray Dalio for a minute. And I know he's been he's influenced you. I think I read his book Principles after you talked about it in your show a few yeah. years ago. Yeah. Like four years ago, actually. His latest book, The Changing World Order, is something I've been he's been sending the chapters out on a bi-monthly or I don't know, every every quarter for the last year or two. And I've been reading each one as they come out. I love the the 30,000 foot view of everything that's going on for the last 500 years is so interesting to me. And the thing that really struck me after reading this stuff, understanding what happened to the Dutch and how they blew their empire up and then how Britain took the reins and Britain basically did the insane, the exact same thing. It all came down to the monetary base. It all came down to the dilution of money. And I think we can agree that we're watching the same thing happen again here in modernity. The thing that really scares me about this is, I don't know if you saw this. I don't know if he said it today, a couple of days ago. Um, he's talk, he, I don't know how in the world he came up with these numbers, but he says that we have a 30% chance in this country of a civil war, just based on just how polarized everybody is. And then you've got this, I mean, this other possibly cataclysmic event of, of this monetary problem kind of cascading into a much bigger social issue. What are your thoughts on that? I know it's a big question. I think for the number that the number that he's coming up with, I'm assuming he's just looking at other events where you have a uh, a, a currency meltdown, and during those events, 30 percent of the time there was a civil war inside inside of those countries over 500 samples or whatever it might be throughout history. That's where I think he's coming up with the number. So he's just looking at it from a pure stats standpoint, that because that's how he mm-hmm. how his brain works. Why does this keep happening over and over again? The reason it keeps happening over and over again is because of gold, mm. right? Gold has a fundamental flaw. It doesn't have the divisibility enough for it to be a currency that can be used to go buy a coffee or very small transactions. Therefore, there always has to be a currency that rides on top of it. Because there always has to be a currency that rides on top of it, There's a requirement for a trusted agent to sit in between what's in the gold vault and the currency that's issued on on top of it. And more importantly, the ratio of currency that rides on top of how many ounces of gold are in the treasury. Because of that trusted agent, you will always have, because of human nature, people that play around and fiddle with those you know, that reserve ratio and that fractional reserve system that's that's constructed on top of it. Sometimes in history, it lasts a very long time because they they fully understood the implications of tinkering with that. Other times it's it rolls over very quickly because the people in charge had no appreciation for how important it was to never tinker with that ratio. Here we are. This one's played out over 80 years, and you're pretty much coming up on the tail end of it because they tinkered with that ratio and didn't allow free markets to be free markets. And uh, they were playing around with the amount of currency that was riding on top of the, of the amount of gold that was in the treasury. It's just that simple. And then when you, that you, you digest where Bitcoin inserts itself, like I'm constantly going through this exercise, Preston, where I'm like, okay, let's go back to basics. Let's go back to fundamentals. Why do you have this conviction? Right. And for me, it's very simple. It's I guess it's two things. It's one, I have a rudimentary understanding of how this protocol works. And I think running a node has been meaningful for me in that regard. Just seeing having a copy of the ledger, 
understanding the sovereignty and the say that you have in the protocol. So the first point I go back to in my head is this thing can enforce a monetary policy that nobody will be able to control. Nobody will be able to commandeer. So you take that first point. And then you realize that this algorithmic monetary policy is, in fact, the, the first discovery of inelastic supply of true, utter scarcity. And when you combine those two things, I mean, it, it's just I, this is an unbelievably basic, you know, recounting of, of why most Bitcoiners are bullish, but it, it continually makes your head explode. You realize that it does solve this fundamental flaw in money that causes the proliferation and the recurrence of this cycle over and over and over again. This thing presents a solution to a hundreds or thousands of year long problem that our, that Homo sapien has undergone because of the ability to manipulate currency and money. So my, my, the optimist in me says this, this is providing humanity with a different direction than what has happened up until this point in time. So Ray, I think Ray would disagree with that. I think Ray, uh, I mean, his, this interview, he just did this two days ago with Andrew Sorkin, in my opinion, was disgusting. Um, and, uh, intellectually and everything I learned from Ray, I'm insanely grateful for everything I've learned because I can tell you right now, I would not be here with this thesis without Ray Dalio today. Um, so I'm very grateful for Ray for that, but at the same time, I'm going to, I'm going to call him out when I think he's, he's really messing up by the numbers and like his opinion on this whole China stuff is disgusting. I think he, I don't like the word compromised, but I think that he is serving his own self-interest to the nth degree uh, and won't say anything bad about China ever. And I, I find that to be a little bit disgusting. But I disagree with Ray on what Bitcoin is going to mean to humanity. And I think it offers this enormous hope that the transition is not going to lead to a civil war, but is actually going to break open the cages, the virtual cages that nearly all market participants currently sit in, and that's their debt that they're up to their eyeballs in. Mm. I think Bitcoin is literally going to be the lock that unlocks all those cage doors and people are going to start coming out. And I think that it's going to be one of the most beautiful things that's ever happened on, in humanity. It's uh, so incredible to that this happened you know, 12 years ago, but it just almost at the perfect time, you know, enough time to bootstrap itself up to be the protocol that it is now, which has instilled the amount of trust that we all have in it at this point, while we're meeting this monetary collision in the next five to 10 years, potentially the transition, as I hope, and I think we all do can be completely seamless. I mean, I hope it is honestly. And I, I, I didn't listen to that interview that one of the Sorkin that you mentioned, I'm assuming that stat came out of that. I saw a blurb of it, read it quick, and just wrote it down and thought I'd ask you about it. But yeah, Dalio is he's an interesting character. I, I want to pull on that thread of, I actually have a quote written down here from your conversation with Breedlove. You, you spend some time talking with him on the What Is Money show series about how you think Bitcoin is going to usher in greater global cooperation. And you said something to the effect of, it'll look barbaric 40 or 50 years from now when people look back and consider that our species was getting in war machines to kill each other. Expound, if you will, on how you see Bitcoin ushering in greater global cooperation than we see today. 
I mean, just think of it from this lens, like as an American, you can use the dollar to your advantage to go hire somebody from a completely different country for services that are a higher quality at a, a fraction of the cost of what you'd pay here in the U.S., that whole currency arbitrage will go away in a, in a Bitcoin world. Everybody's going to have a fair shake so that your labor that you would put, like your one ounce of labor that you perform here is equivalent to the one ounce of labor that anybody, no matter where they're at on the planet, performs. That's going to be massive. That's going to be huge for just global coordinated progress and uh, productivity. I just, you know, and, and when you think of, war today, like it's protecting the systems that are in place, right? It's to protect this net, these network effects that are associated with these various jurisdictions and and the currencies and the money and the stability that's associated with them. So if you now have this global standard and you have everybody kind of on it, where's, what's the need to, to battle over things, right? And, and you're removing the trusted agent, which is really kind of the root at all, because think about it, like, if one country has, is, has a corrupt, trusted agent, and then the country next to them doesn't, and they're playing by the rules, they're getting screwed. Correct. Right? They're getting screwed, and they then want revenge for getting screwed. But if everyone's forced to play by the rules, or else you're heavily penalized, a lot of those incentives that create that social unrest disappear. So mm. I'm very hopeful for that to be the, the scenario decades from now. I hope you're right. Me too. I really do. We talked to Joe Carlosari uh, last week, and we asked him a little bit about the 6102 and as a lawyer, how if if they could affect any kind of um, Bitcoin grab as if as, like they did with gold in the early 30s. And it was his opinion that it's extremely unlikely, especially as deep as this thing is entrenched itself, at least so far. But the, I guess the pessimist in me watches what goes on now with uh, these emergency orders and like COVID vaccine stuff and how quickly they grab for power when they're up against the wall. Do you have any worry about that at all? Do you think about that? A law is only as good as its enforcement. Yeah, that's actually something Joe hinted at in our discussion. He said he's gone back and looked at it. And when you actually pull out the number of people that were flagged for this, right? From 6102. It's actually a, a very small number and a ton of people held on to their gold through that whole charade. The same thing will happen, especially when you think about just the insanity of the complexity and security behind these self-sovereign schemas. I mean, how in the world are you going to try to commandeer this asset from a, from a, a wide swathing, uh, incentivized group of people that have a tremendous amount of wealth in it? I mean, good luck. It, it's difficult to hide a significant amount of gold without leaving some type of trace. With Bitcoin, you could have a billion dollars worth of Bitcoin. And if you ha haven't spent it while the person's standing in front of you, there's absolutely no way they can prove that you own it. Totally different animal. Completely, Completely different. different beast. We call it a slippery hog, Preston. We like to call uh, Bitcoin a slippery hog. Try to get on it and ride it because you ain't catching it. I think you're going to, you're also going <laughs> to see, you're also going to see, uh, a lot of jurisdictions that are totally embracing it and benefiting in a very obvious kind of way. And I think you're going to have a lot of elected officials that are going to see it and be like, all right, if we don't participate in this, we are just going to be shooting ourselves in the foot in this epic race of proportions between 
nation yeah. states. So I think that that's going to be that's going to become really obvious as we continue to move forward here. It's a freaking Trojan horse, Preston. Anytime you start talking about the Trojan horse, I get excited. But it really is. I mean, <laughs> Gladstein's piece, I forget what the title is, but it's got Trojan horse in it. It is so true. I mean, this thing is so freaking shiny and everybody wants it in their treasure chest. And then once it's there, man, this thing is freedom go up and there is no stopping it. And yeah. I think one of the most surprising things for me, just from from my short time in it, is I am pleasantly surprised at the, the demeanor of politicians and regulators to this, towards this thing. It, it is it is surprising me, I would say. Yeah, I'm a little surprised that we're already seeing them, some of them figure it out and, and embracing it. I think a lot of them are embracing it because they're seeing the social media attention. Like It's really obvious. They say Bitcoin and they got... 5,000 likes on just saying that. And then everything else they talk about has 100 likes. They're like, hey, I'm just going to mention this Bitcoin thing a couple more times. I don't even know what it is, but I want to keep bringing it up. And uh, I think they can see that there is a very, very powerful community and movement happening. And they might not even fully understand it, but they're harnessing that because they're getting free media, which is dollars, uh, campaign dollars in order to get that kind of attention. One thing we want to talk with you about is the uh, Mark Cuban conversation. Um, I don't know how long it's been since that happened, a few weeks or a month or whatever. I was driving late at night to uh, Indiana, actually had the family in the car and uh, was blaring that. And my wife was like, can you turn this thing off? I'm like, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely not. I, I'm sorry. I love you. Baby's asleep in the back. This thing is staying on. And uh, I'm just curious. Let's start here. Like, how do you feel about that conversation now that it's had some time to marinate? Uh, I was happy to have all my friends up on the stage, but if I had to do it over again, I would have just gone one-on-one with them. Agreed. There, yeah, was, too many, there was too many cooks in the kitchen. Yeah. That's exactly what I thought, but I, I thought you did a phenomenal job. And it was hilarious that he was literally panting out of breath the whole time because I, I don't know, he's on a <laughs> treadmill or something. <laughs> but his audio was his audio was terrible and he was out of breath the whole time. I mean, I give him huge props. I give him huge props to step into a conversation with somebody he doesn't really even, I mean, he knows, he knows my Twitter account, but to not even know me or what I'm going to say or where the conversation was going to go, there was no strings attached. I mean, it was just wide open. And so I, I applaud him for stepping in and and having the conversation. Um, I think he's grossly missing the uh, macro point of view. And having an appreciation for how broke the existing system is, and I think I think that's really the the main difference between us is is I see that at, at the forefront and have constructed my entire thesis around that, and I think he's just looking at it as another cool technology that that might have an impact on the world, probably will have an impact on the world, but I really don't know how or like how yeah. it's going to really evolve from here. So I might as well just own everything. Right. Like that's pretty much for sure. And you know what? Mark doesn't have to be that right. Like he can, he can put 1% in this and he's still going to be loaded. Right. Yeah. That's the implication I got too, is like, he's looking at this, like the dot-com boom where I don't know if pets.com is going to win or, yeah. you know, Amazon, but I've got enough money to buy it all. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. 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 He's in a way he's in, this may be an extreme statement, but he, he is in many regards incentivized not to see this. Like, you know, VCs are giving him first privilege at the at the trough of these new token offerings. Like, I think I heard yep. he got in on Solana at like four cents. So, uh, I'm not I'm not labeling him with malintent, but like that that's, that's not, not true. That's not true. 
and he told me it's not true. Okay, so he, <laughs> he do you think he does have first access to the teat on a lot of this stuff or no? <laughs> of course. I yeah. mean, See, the, how I mean, could he not? It's right? the altcoin so, kid tilling effect. Right. But, he, but I, I'll tell you, he owns Ethereum, he owns Bitcoin. Or at least he did the last time I talked to him. This is, this is <laughs> hear it from a fireman here, Mark Cuban. This is kind of my perspective. And, and obviously hats off to the guy. And I totally agree with you. Like for him to come into that arena, you know, mad respect. Like truly, when you think about engaging, I don't know, adversary might be heavy handed, but, but that's very cool that he took the time to do that. Totally. But, but the way I would, I would sort of characterize him, like Mark Cuban is unbelievably good at, at remodeling bathrooms on the second, first, second, third floor of homes. But what he's not good at is uh, identifying cracks and foundations of homes. And I think that's sort of what you're talking about. Like you're, you're saying, hey, Mark, I understand you've built this gorgeous master bath on the second floor, but let's go down a few levels and analyze the structural integrity of this entire system. It's just so broken. It's, I don't understand. It's hard for me to understand why this isn't just a realization that everybody's able to make, but we were all there at one point, you know, and, and unable to see it. And once again, when you follow the incentives, he's he's had a playbook that's worked very well for a long time. And it's it's working in altcoin land, at least the way I see it. Yeah, I think just in general, it goes back to he doesn't have to be that right. And he's still going to be a super wealthy person and uh, do whatever the hell he wants in life. And so he just doesn't have to spend that much time thinking about this. If he even has, I mean, today, based on where the price of Bitcoin is, if he even has 1% of his net worth in Bitcoin, he, he's going to protect his buying power, the, his entire net worth. So a guy like that, like, hey, he's, he's having fun. He's out there. I mean, he's just, he, that's, that's just where he's at, right? He's in a different situation. Yeah, thinking of the Sharks, Kevin O'Leary, I've listened to him on a few different podcasts, and he seems to actually really understand what's going on here, at least better than Cuban does. I mean, at least he's he, he's thinking about turning his watch fixation into NFTs so that they can be verified by a jeweler and they can use NFTs to verify these watches are genuine um, for, for these super luxurious watches that he collects or whatever. But it sounds to me, after listening to him talk about Bitcoin, that he actually has a pretty good handle on what's going on. Overall. Yeah. And I, so I agree that I think Kevin has a better handle on it than Mark. Um, to the watch comment, I'm looking at that and saying, why does that need to be on a decentralized network? Why right. can't you just stand up your own server and, mm -hmm. and validate the the serial codes on the watches from your own server? Yeah. Right. Like anytime somebody tells me the NFT thing, I'm just like, okay, so like, why do you need that to be on a decentralized exchange? Yeah. Like, why do the tickets to the sporting event need to be on a decentralized exchange? Or how is that not going to get eaten by a less decentralized platform? I mean, I think that's one of the most powerful exercises. It's like, what is your coin accomplishing? Okay. How is that not going to be suffocated by catastrophic competition that's that's more efficient? And it just, it feels like one of these protocols is on an island of its own. There's nobody around that's going to threaten it. And then everybody else is duking it out. And we're going to choose to stay in the land of safety. I mean, it's so Mark right now, from what I understand, uh, He's doing his tickets as like NFT or trying to do his tickets as NFTs so that he can resell the tickets. So like if I buy one of his digital tickets, I can then resell it to somebody else if I don't want to, if I can't make it to the game. Why can't he just do that on the, why can't Ticketmaster do that right now? Where they can, <laughs> right. Yeah. Where the person, 
I think you can resell your tickets on Ticketmaster. Yeah, I, like why do you need a decentralized exchange to do that? Like why can't I just relist it and then they get a cut of of the other person who buys the ticket? Like it's just just because you can do something and you see this in engineering. Just because you can do something doesn't mean you should do it. And this is where I would tell you engineers come off the rails a little bit. They get excited with new technology because they can build something that's never been built before, but they're not thinking it through from a value add to society or a 10x value add to society. They just want to build it. And they don't think about the, the P&L or the marketing or the market that's going to actually buy the thing that they constructed, right? Yeah. So what's the value add for a lot of this? Right. <laughs> like, do I need to own a JPEG yeah. <laughs> that I can just literally right click? I mean, it's crazy. And you don't own a CryptoPunk, Preston? I do you not. Why isn't that up in your, your, why isn't that up in your recording area? Preston, why don't I have a the picture of the big giant blown up crypto punk in the back? Right, like I just see the whole thing as being a function of when people twenty years would look back at this moment in time and they'd be like, "There were people paying a million dollars for a JPEG." Yeah, that was just that was it, right? It's they're gonna say that's what hyperinflation. That's like what the environment looks like when you're going yeah. through a hyperinflation scenario. In the yeah. Weimar Republic, um, I was reading some quips out of um, the book about that, and I can't remember its name off the top of my head, but they were the speculation in the stock market in, in Weimar Germany was exactly as it is now. I mean, obviously not yeah. Dogecoin and everything, but they had to actually shut the exchanges down for days at a time because there was so much paper, because everything was on paper then, that they had to count everything, account for it all, and then restart the exchange, and they would have to immediately shut it down again because the speculating had gotten so out of control that the the stock exchanges couldn't keep up with it. And 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 they use the word speculation as if people were just out of their minds, right? They weren't out of their minds. They were making actual actually really rational decisions. And what the rational decision was is you I want to trade money. this yeah, I want to trade this thing that they're debasing by hundreds and millions of units to own this thing that has a scarce amount of mm. units, yeah. which was stock certificates. Because the company didn't need to issue more stock certificates. They were profitable, right? And that's that's why you see the everybody's using the stock market today as a de facto currency because it has scarcity into the number of stock certificates and units that are there versus the M2 money supply, which is It'd be like if the whole stock market was issuing more shares in double digits, every single company on the stock market, you wouldn't see the prices changing because it would be keeping up with the M2 money supply that's getting debased. Yeah. But that's that's where we're at. That's that's why people are making, in my opinion, not speculative decisions. They're making very rational decisions. One thing I want to double back to is kind of what you were alluding to with like Mark Cuban's cost of being wrong is low. He's fine. Very He's low. set. And I think that's uh, juxtaposed significantly against the demographic we're trying to get through to. And that's yes. uh, the, the people we work with, us, we don't have resources to piss into the wind. And that's right. We, we often talk a lot because we want to be careful too. Like we don't want to be, 
we are we are allergic to dogmatism. We don't want to come out with vitriol and hatred. We don't want to be assholes, okay? But at the same time, the, the people we're trying to get our message across to, it is important for them to understand what has value, what has use case, and what doesn't. What's hyper risky and what's a good calculated investment. And so, I mean, we're careful. To, we, we try not to be over the top, but like, that's why we're maximalists, quote unquote, because it, it, it's, it's actually important. It impacts real people's lives. We know actual people, Preston, that are wasting tremendous amount of their hard-earned resources on totally illiquid, pointless shit coins. Okay. So this, this is, this has real world, real life impact for people. And I think this transitions into a good topic we want to, we want to get to before we close, which is like, why the middle class and average wage earner need this protocol or how this can assist them in the climate that exists today. Mark Cuban's not in a cage. Most people, and when I say most, I'm talking like a very high percentage, like I said earlier, are locked in cages. You want to know why they're mad? They're furious because they, they're tired of being locked in the cage. And what it feels like to be in the cage is this. I work my ass off all day long. When I come home, I can't spend any of my money because if I do, I won't be able to afford my electric bill at the end of the month. I watch all these other people on TV and they're out there buying Louis Vuitton bags and doing all this stuff and I can't do any of it. And next month, I'm going to be able to do less than what I'm doing right now. And it feels like the harder I work, the less I make. That's what that's living in the cage. And that's most people. I can't even see my kid. Like I can't stay home with my kids because I have to go get a job, then pay for, for somebody else to watch my young kids. Mm -hmm. And that's for me to make an extra hundred dollars as a joint income. Like it's just all these things like that. That's being in the cage. Now that's why Bitcoiners are taking it so seriously and why they're maybe a little rude to Wall Streeters or other people that maybe have a high net worth is because this, this, is, their, this is their key to get out of the cage. And um, when I look at people who get caught up in the, the shitcoin casino, um, I think what's happening is they're seeing that as a lottery ticket, a, a, a lottery ticket that has a much higher probability payoff than a lottery ticket. Absolutely. Okay. And all they know is Timmy down the street uh, made $20,000 by buying this lottery ticket. And then they talked to somebody else and Sally also won the lottery because she played a completely different lottery ticket and she made $5,000, right? And so that's what's going on with the shitcoin casino. It's not that these people are bad people. These people are just looking for a way out. They want some glimmer of hope. And they're seeing it, and it's it's not like, how many people do you know won $5,000 with a lottery ticket? I know zero. Do you guys know, know anybody? I know none. Yeah. Nobody. Nobody, right? But what if everybody around you just started winning the lottery and winning like $1,000 or $5,000? You're going to go there and you're going to buy a lottery ticket, or at least more people will. Mm -hmm. And so that's that's my opinion of the shitcoin casino, is that. Meanwhile, you got all these VCs that are behind all this stuff, and they're you know pumping a narrative, and then they're 
they're rug pulling and then they're buying Bitcoin with the proceeds. Um, you know, it, it's just, it's, it's a product of the environment, which is being induced yeah. by fiscal irresponsibility and monetary policy by central bankers that are then supplying the liquidity to paper over the, the lack of responsibility from a fiscal spending standpoint. And I, my initial reaction to listening to that is those VCs are scumbags, right? And that's exactly what I thought right away. But then you think deeper about it and you realize that they're just responding to incentives as well. Like that's it's, right. it's, that's almost like are. thinking about the fed and saying Jerome Powell is a piece of shit because he keeps printing money. But these VCs are starved for yield. They're operating in a world where they can't get anything from fixed income. They're looking at the stock market. Maybe they're understanding this stuff and they see an easy appetizing buffet of, I don't know if you could say, VCs. I, I don't know if you could say VCs are starved, starved to yield. The way the VC game works is like this. I'm going to raise a fund for a hundred million dollars. Whether I raise $80 million, $50 million, or $100 million, I'm going to suck my 2% fee off of $100 million, right? So then they, they do the raises, right? And then if they get a winner on their hands and they turn that $100 million bucks into $200 million, bucks, then they're going to charge a 20% uh, fee on the $100 million that they made. And then they're going to hand back the other $80 million back to, back to the investors. So- like they're not starved from yield, especially because the way that they're making that two hundred million is they go in there, they gut the organization, they lever the thing up to the to the eyeballs so that they're not using their own money, they're using a bunch of this free money, okay, to get like massive returns on what they're doing. You know, they're finding something, they're they're bidding the the market, they're trying to take it into the public markets, which as you go from PE uh, premiums of seven eight percent uh, discount cash flow yields down to two if you put it into the public markets, you're going you're gonna to achieve those $100 million returns by making it go public. That's the game, right? So those guys aren't starved of yield. They're out there just doing these things. Now, when you talk about doing it in the quote unquote crypto space, I mean, my God, you can just, you can make these insane market caps by just manipulation of units outstanding onto the actual market. So like mm. I can create a billion units I'll drop a hundred of them onto the market. I'll sell a couple to various VC firms, right? And then all of a sudden I got a protocol that's worth $30 billion. Right. Yeah. That's the game. And then let me put this swoopy little marketing spin on it. It has like no volume. That's what's happening. It's crazy. It's incredibly obvious that if Bitcoin is the, dare we say, once in a species discovery that the three of us tend to think it is, there's going to be a lot of bullshit riding its coattails. And oh God, yeah. You couldn't and say so it any better. I think I think it also provides it you provides can't say a it lot any of, better than that. It provides okay. a lot of camouflage too. I mean because That's my point. So so there's this there's this gentleman I know that he told me outright, because I made a statement in 2017 and I was like, hey, I I think there is a there is a chance that this is a bigger discovery than the internet itself. This was kind of when I just read Andreas Antonopoulos' Internet of Money. Yeah. I was really grappling with just what decentralization meant, what this discovery of scarcity meant, whatever. I, I made this statement to him at some party. And he actually recently doubled back to me this year and he said, I'm down the rabbit hole now. He remembered the statement I made, which I'd forgotten. And he said, what didn't allow me to see it for the last four years is he has these other acquaintances and people that he knows 
that just the the narrative that they're spinning behind why they're interested in this space is so hollow and so devoid of fundamentals and so devoid of research that he just wrote the whole space off together. And I think that's happening to a lot of people top to bottom because when you, when you start to engage this community, you realize that this is some interdisciplinary chops going on. There are a lot of hungry, uh, critical thinking intellectuals that have spent hundreds and thousands of hours researching this. And then you slip over to the other side, the altcoin market. And a lot of these people that have, you know, that are trading this for a living or have a huge percentage of their net worth in it, they, they literally couldn't put together three sentences about what exactly their favorite token is doing. But these two things are grouped together in the heads of a lot of people at this date and time. And one of them's not like the other. <laughs> this this might sound a little spiritual, but I think individuals will be provided the energy that they can actually, the, the capacity of energy that they can actually handle. And yeah. they're going to allocate that energy in the most effective way for mankind, the world, as a collective species. And so if you're a person who just has bad incentives and, and you know, I, I could get into a real long <laughs> philosophical di discussion on bad and good and all that kind of crap, but I would just keep it as simple as this. If you're somebody who has really good intentions for mankind, I think the universe is just going to flow as much energy as it possibly can through you. And it's going to do that through me, through whatever means it desires. And, uh, you got, monetary energy, you have energy through other forms. Maybe it's through uh, just communicating, right? Spreading ideas that are going to help society. But it's going to, it's not going to flow energy through you if you're not doing something that's beneficial for others in a constructive kind of way. And for those that, that are having energy flown through their system, their body and, and what they're doing, if they're not pointing it in a direction that, that is advantageous, that energy will devour that person and consume them and destroy them and take that power away from them. It's just a matter of when. Well said. Amen. I think maybe we should put a bow on it there. You got anything you want to, <laughs> you want to add there, Josh? No. The one thing that strikes me when you say that is, you know, you ever watch, the Wolf of Wall Street is a perfect example of this in, in obviously a very Hollywood way, but a guy who does really well with really bad intentions. And you're all, and if you're like me, and I'm, I think everybody thinks this to themselves, they're watching something like that, and you think to yourself, Jordan, why don't you just stop? You've made $100 million. Aren't you good? Does, do you really need 150, 200, 300, whatever it is? But they ended up destroying themselves with greed, you know? And do you want to? You want to talk about the biggest curse you could ever have in your life? Give somebody a hundred million dollars and then take it away from them three years later. You're going to wish you never received it. Yeah. That's like every lottery winner's story. Yeah. Be careful because, you know, Bitcoin for people that have been in this and have like, it, it could do some incredible things. It could provide some incredible opportunities, but that knife could turn on you and cut the other way. Absolutely. And that's something we think about because we're, I mean, we're passionate about this. We're excited. We're motivated. This, this thing is awesome. But if, if we think that Bitcoin and the wealth that it's going to bring is going to deliver us happiness in life, we're going to be sorely disappointed. Um, yes. and that's just a powerful theme because 
it is not going to bring happiness in and of itself. It can enable you to bless a lot of people and do a lot of cool things, but it can also make you Ebenezer Scrooge. That's exactly right. If you're not doing things to help other people and to benefit them, what are you doing? (laughs) It's really that simple. What are you doing? And why do you have this source of energy if you're just going to consume it like a parasite for yourself? All right, here's our last question. It's going to be quick. Um, Outside of Bitcoin, outside of finance, totally unrelated, uh, what's something you're interested in or passionate about in life? My, My kids, that one's easy. It's a good yeah, answer. I mean, it, we feel the same it, it way. Just, it's just all, it, it, it totally revolved. My entire life revolves around my family. This Bitcoin stuff is fun and I, I enjoy it. I enjoy the math uh, and just like the complexity. I just love the complexity and trying to make sense of it. It's a lot of fun. But uh, yeah, my passion are my kids and just seeing the joy in their faces and just my, my wife is the best. Like we just, we have a blast together, man. We really do. You know? Yeah. Being a dad and a husband is a pretty cool thing. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. It just doesn't get any, doesn't get any better than that. Preston, thanks so much for your time, man. This was a, this was a privilege and um, a lot of good takeaways for us. Hope our audience feels the same way. I'm sure they will. That, I wish we would have spent the entire time talking to you about the spirituality aspect, to be honest with you. That was, <laughs> yeah. I, I got, I, I don't know how many hours I did with Breedlove. Watch, listen to that. That's, uh, yeah. we, we got into some of that stuff. Yeah. We're actually talking to Breedlove next week. So, uh, we'll, we'll shelve it for then. And, uh, <laughs> hey, we're not going to talk about Bitcoin whatsoever, Rob. We're going straight to the spirituality. We're going deep. Get right cosmic, away. baby. Yeah. Get cosmic. We're going to tell him Pish says get cosmic. That's going to be our <laughs> Tell him I said That'll that. That'll be the All opener. Right. Preston, have a great evening, man. You guys, too. This was such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Josh. Dan, had a blast. Us, too. Take care. Thank See you, guys. Thanks for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. You can also follow us on Twitter. We're at blue underscore collar BTC. We invite questions, comments, and inquiries of any kind, and our email is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to you joining us next time on the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast.